Welcome to the Nothing in Particular show, where you sit down with a beer, cup of coffee, or a great glass of wine and have an entertaining discussion with your new besties, Breezy Weeks and Travis Cody. What will we talk about today? Nothing in particular, or whatever is top of mind. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Nothing in Particular show. This is Travis Cody, and joining me is my amazing co-host, Breezy Weeks. Hello. Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the show. So you, Miss Breezy, have mm-hmm. a very fascinating background in the entertainment industry that's going to be bring a really awesome, fun viewpoint to everything that we're doing. First and foremost, you can buffer my patriarchal chauvinistic opinions uh, <laughs> and soften them out and give you know a, a legitimate female viewpoint. Um, and we will get there. But first and foremost, I would love to introduce the audience to you, give them a little bit about your background and, and your history and let them know why we're so excited to have you join us on the show. So let, let's just kind of jump in to it. You were born and raised right outside of Los Angeles, yes? Yes, I was. Um, more like Ventura County area. All right. So for people who don't know, that's just a little bit north of LA. Yeah. I was actually born in Panorama City, so um, so yeah, the San Fernando Valley, but um, but pretty much grew up in Thousand Oaks for most of my life. So you had the advantage of feeling like growing up in a small town, but being just an hour away from like the center of the entertainment universe. Technically, it's an hour away, <laughs> but we know with traffic um, nowadays that it can consist of like three hours away. But yes, um, it's supposed to be about like a 40 minute, you know, an hour drive out of uh, LA. <laughs> nice. Well, what's interesting is, you know, when I lived in LA, there were so few people that actually were born and, and stayed in LA. Most of the people that I met there were, uh, you know, transplants, Im- immigrants, I guess we could say, immigrants to LA. <laughs> oh, uh, watch, but you, watch out. Watch yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't, California didn't have the wall up yet. So I was able to sneak through. And uh, um, so you have a, a unique experience in that you were sort of, surrounded by the entertainment industry growing up a little bit. Yeah. And I have to also say, I mean, there were little bits of my life that we did move in and out of California um, for short periods of time. Um, My dad was an artist as in like painting and um, album designing, album cover designing. Um, So sometimes he would get a job and we'd have to move to that area for a while. Um, and so, and when I was really little and I wasn't really attending school yet, that was okay. That was something that we could do. So we did live in Florida for a little while in the Keys. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. He was hired to do a job for the Jurgens family, Jurgens Lotion. <laughs> so, um, and they had him painting these like wall murals in their home. So we lived there for a while. They put so us So in the in Florida it. Keys, there's a house that has murals <laughs> on the wall that was painted by your dad. Possibly. I mean, unless they're painted over at this point, but you know, at one time for the Jurgens family. Yeah. So we lived there. Um, Sounds like a fun place to be a kid. Oh, it was a dream. It was, I was, I was just about preschool entering into kindergarten almost. So I have some pretty good memories, you know, scattered memories, um, all really great. Even when we were there for a hurricane, my parents didn't have such a great experience, but as a kid, it was super cool and awesome (laughs) (laughs) to have fish floating in your 
house. <laughs> and but, um, we soon moved out of there after that hurricane. So um, they didn't. Yeah. And then we lived in Texas too. My dad was from Texas. So we also lived there um, just for a short time as well. And, but then it, California, you know, always pulled us back in. So that's where I spent most so of my time. You, you obviously have a, a bit of a background in, in Hollywood and have been around and done some modeling and TV and some acting and all that sort of stuff. So when did you, what was your first experience? Uh, when Was it something you did as a kid or were you kind of out on your own before you started to dip your foot into the entertainment waters? Yeah, I think it was always, um, I was always surrounded by it with my family. I mean, I have an aunt and uncle who have a record label, uh, mostly like jazz music that they've been doing for quite a while. And then my parents actually met at 20th Century Fox. It what? used to be 20th, yeah, <laughs> it was 20th Century Fox Records at the time. Um, and that's how they met. And then also my aunt and uncle who have the record label that I just was talking about, they were working there too. And, um, so they all kind of met, you know, there, my mom was also a model at the time. And so it's just, I, I had that kind of influence growing up. It was always around me that, that buzz kind of, um, so I didn't have like a, a major interest in it. I was more into art, drawing and painting and sculpting. And I went to like school for art history, that kind of stuff. Um, mainly from my dad, just being inspired from him. But about right, almost when like high school is ending and then you have to meet with your counselor and you have to talk to them about what your goals are for the future. And you're supposed to be talking about college and, you know, all these huge big plans for your future. And um, I, it's probably the worst thing they want to hear, but I said, I want to do modeling and I want to do acting. And they were just like, oh, great. <laughs> you know? Another one of those. There's another one. <laughs> um but I was determined, like I, I wanted to give it a shot. So yeah. So you started um, right out of high school then? I started right out. Of, I, you know, I tried to go to college right out of high school, take all the general and I just got so bored. It was just not my thing. Um, so I, I stopped and I started going, um, doing just like extra work, you know, like well, many of us start out. Um, just signed up at a couple different agencies, um, as many as I could under non-union and just get a feel of it. And I got a lot of work and I was doing that. So what was your first paid job as a model and as an actor? Gosh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I still to this day, like come up with things that I worked on that I, I didn't even remember. And Dallin, you know, my husband will be like, I didn't know you worked on that. And I'm like, yeah, I just kind of, like, <laughs> I kind of forgot, forgot about that. Yeah. You kind I of forgot about out. that photo shot shoot I did with Cindy Crawford. Oh yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So it was like, but some of the most memorable ones I can remember on before I was a union SAG, you know, worker was, um, which we'll discuss if some people don't know what that is, but, um, was like, um, Angel, that show Angel, that was oh, like yeah. a spinoff of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. Uh, David uh, something. Yeah, he's back, and I guess he's back doing acting again. Um, yeah, he so, did. Um, uh, it's it's really funny because he he went on from Angel and did the show called Bones, which was on the air for like twelve years. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, my my wife and I, for whatever reason, my wife really liked it. I never had heard of it, and then about six months ago, we started watching it, and 
now there's like two days a week where we'll sit down and be like, let's watch an episode of Bones. And it turns into three hours because we're binge watching. <laughs> all, and I'm like, oh, there's 12 seasons. It's going to be three years before I'm finished with this. Right. So it's just funny that that's the, so what were, so what did you do on Angel? Um, Angel was just extra work, but that's the one that got the help boost me and get my um, Screen Actors Guild, um, you know, membership and stuff. Um, I just did a bunch of featured parts on there. So, um, oh, so you were on more than one episode then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Couldn't tell you which ones if I had to remember. That's what I was saying. I'm like, did I just push that out of my memory? Um, but I did that. Um, I think I did. I'm like trying to remember. Um, after that, my big, my right before I actually became Screen Actors Guild, it was still non union. It was the Sweet Valley High show. So there used to be a series, a book series and I actually read all of them when I was a young girl and they made a show of it it was on air briefly and it was you know two twin girls and I don't know their life and their antics and stuff and so they had this non-union show that I worked on and I worked as an extra a couple times and then because I was kind of a frequent on there they I heard the word that they were gonna um, look for a stand-in uh, and body double for one of the girls or both, whatever it had to do. Cause if you're, you, you know, you can stand in for both of them if needed. But, um, so they asked me to come to the audition. I had that look at the time. I was like slender, tan, blonde, long hair, just like they had this look. So I fit that and they asked me to come back for an audition. So I did. And it's a funny story. Cause my mom like retells it to me in, in a different like perspective. Cause she wrote me. <laughs> I was like 18 at the time. She drove me to the audition and she says her point of view, she's like, I dropped you off and I saw all these babes, you know, these girls, like I'm just 18 year old girl and I've always looked younger than my age. So if you can imagine I'm 18, I probably look like I'm 15. Like I just, so, and she's like, I'm dropping you off and I'm, I'm seeing this loads of girls, all different, you know, all look sizes. the same. Yeah. Gorgeous, older, you know, curves that I don't have all this stuff. Just like, Oh my gosh. And she's like, I just was like thinking in my head, good luck. You know, <laughs> your mom's like, there's not a chance in heck this is happening. <laughs> Cause she knows she did that. She, so, um, so yeah, anyways, I went on the audition. So, so the phrase for that is called cattle call. It's right. Cattle call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I went on the audition they just didn't even seem interested, passed me by quickly. I didn't, you know, it was like, I didn't feel good about it, left. And then I think it was a day or two, I got a phone call from, you know, one of the production people. And they're like, did you come to the audition the other day? And I was like, yeah, I was there. And they're like, oh, well, um, yeah, well, we want you. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I had no, I, I did not think I had a chance. So I worked on that full time every day. Um, and that was probably my real job in the industry, working every single day, those long hours, 12, 14 hours. And, you know, so I'm you did using. some work then as an extra that got you your screen actors right before you got your screen actors guild card. And then you had the chance to go and be what we call stand in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So let's, let's stop and go back. So, I, so sure. we'll, we'll talk about the evolution of how most people get started in Hollywood. Cause my, my journey was very similar to this. Uh, and one of my good friends, he, he did something a little bit similar as well, which is <clears throat> most people when they move to LA, 
you know, we talk about the Screen Actors Guild and obviously there's the Screen Actors Guild Awards and, you know, people who aren't in Hollywood, all they'll know is that about every six or seven years, the Screen Actors Guild goes on strike and shuts everything down. <laughs> and my, yeah. my amazing show that should have been 24 episodes now is only 10 episodes, bastards. And <laughs> right. uh, so let's talk about that. I'll explain it a little bit and then you talk about your experience with it. So for mm -hmm. listeners, the, the way it works is there's, there's sort of two levels of payment in the industry. There's, there's non-union jobs and then there's union jobs. And obviously the union jobs pay a lot more, have a lot better perks, and it's sort of the, the, the thing you aspire to. So when you first go to LA, in my experience, you, you just want to work. Like you just want to get on set however you can. And so you know, there's a lot of jobs for extras. And so what is an extra? So if you ever watch a show and uh, we were talking about Bones, so that, that's, I'll just use that one as a good example. So let's say that, that Bones and his partner are sitting on a park bench and, you know, all the, there's people all over in the park. There's people in the, the, the sandbox, there's people on the swings, there's people uh, you know, riding bikes by, there's people that are, uh, you know, having picnics. Like all of those people are paid actors those are extras and usually a show will be a union show so the two main actors are union but everyone else that you see is non-union and the reason is is because they get to pay those people less it's cheaper now as a as an actor you want to get into the screen actors guild because it it gives you access to better paying jobs now here's the catch <laughs> yeah. you can only work in a in a union project if you have your union card but you can only get your Screen Actors Guild card by working on a union project. It's <laughs> yeah. the awesome catch 22. Uh, and so there's like, it, 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 there's all sorts of like mental stress and anxiety that comes from just trying to figure out how the bloody heck do you get your Screen Actors Guild card. Now, the way you, what you just did breezy is, is you went in and you became what we call a featured actor. And so uh, I have a friend who was a, a featured actor in ER. He started out as a non-union extra and he went on ER and he ended up getting on ER over the course of a year, I don't know, like three or four different times, just kind of randomly. It's sort of like a lottery basis usually with extras. And he met someone on set and they liked him and he got featured, which means you have the two actors in front of the camera and then the person in the background that you can clearly see their face. That's what we've called featured. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up getting hired on a full-time basis on ER. So when you go into ER, yes, you have the five main actors, but if you'll notice and you watch the episodes of ER, there's people that never say a word, but like all of the nurses and the EMTs and stuff, you'll notice that there's seven or eight of those have to stay the same. And the reason being, obviously, it's a hospital, so it would be the same people. So that's, that's the route that he went. So that's what you did with Angel. You ended up working on Angel kind of consistently and, and going there quite a bit, and that positioned you for this other job. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so now I'm going to let you get into this because that leads into your next opportunity, which was you got an audition for a stand-in. So most people don't know what the heck a stand-in is. So I'm going to let you explain what is that job? How does it work? And why is it necessary? Yeah. And, and also just let me reiterate there to what you're just saying is um, also, th so the thing for me that was a little catchy was that I was working on a full-time job, which is also, it's like, 
you want to break, get in the Screen Actors Guild. You want to be taken more serious as an actor, get better paying jobs. But you also want frequent work because we all don't want to have to balance a normal job with acting, <laughs> which is what a lot of us have to do. And that's hard to find a job that will allow you to go like on auditions and stuff. So um, I had this job with Sweet Valley High TV show. And for some, it could be a dream. I was going every single day. It's a consistent job. I'm meeting lots of people. Um, you know, I, I'm getting paid fairly well, you know, for an 18 year old. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on set. I'm watching things happen. So um, I did it long enough where I got to a certain point where I had to make the decision because the whole production was a non-union production. So like you were saying, no matter what I do, because I was also doing like featured extras, um, roles on there as well like when they wouldn't need me as Stanon, they would throw me in on camera but i'm never gonna get screen actor guild because this whole production is non-union so um i need to go work on a production that is union and it will give me that opportunity <laughs> so i had to i had to stop and, and leave that that job after a certain point that was risky too so yes yeah, so now yeah, you finally get some consistent job be showing up on set every day. Most people would call that a dream job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the the pros behind it is that I, I got that um, on my resume that I did stand-in work, which is great because that's just some really good work that you, once you get in it and people know who you are, you just, the jobs keep rolling in. So, um, so yeah, I'll explain. Stand-in work, um, people use different terminology some people say body double, some people say stand-in, some, some it can be both, just depending on what you're doing on set. Um, so a stand-in is basically every actor in a, in a TV show or production that has a, you know, a well-paying production, <laughs> you know, depending on what it is, um, they'll have a stand-in for the actors. And this is just so that the actors in between um, takes, you know, the actor doesn't have to stand there while they set up the next shot. So while they're setting up the camera, the lighting, um, going over, rehearsing what the scene's going to be, the actor doesn't have to stand there and do all that work on top of doing the actual scene. I mean, believe it or not, it, it can be, <coughs> Excuse me. be exhausting if you have to do all that. It really can. It's, they're long hours we're talking. So, yeah, and this is, I've had this conversation when I've gone back home to Utah where a lot of people are like, you know, what the heck, why, why does a two-hour movie take six months to film? <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the deal? And yeah. so, you know, getting into some of the technical stuff, and I'll explain it here for people. So let's say that pretty, a pretty typical scene in a movie is two people sitting at a, at a, at a table having dinner and having a conversation. So you don't realize this as a viewer, but when you're watching that scene on screen, you'll have a scene where it's, you see both of them, like one person's on the left, one person's on the right, and they're talking to each other. And then it'll cut away so that you're just looking at the face of the person on the left as they're responding. And then they'll show both people at the table again. And then there's a cut where you see the person on the right's face, what we call a close up. Now, the reason it takes so long is that each one of those shots, while it seems like it's something simple, each one of them, the camera and all of the lights have to be set up specifically just for that shot. Right. So when you have two people sitting in a dinner table, you've got to put all the cameras and all the lights so that both of them are lit perfectly. And you've got to go through that scene, you know, seven, eight, nine, 20 times, 50 times, depending on what the director wants. Well, when that's over, 
Now they have to move all of the cameras and move all of the lights to just get the close-up of the person on the left. Just moving the camera and the lights and getting everything set up, that, that sometimes can be a two or a three hour or even a four hour process. Mm -hmm. So you can't have, now they have to test the actor and make sure the lighting's right. So obviously Tom Cruise is not going to be sitting there in a chair for four hours while they move some lights. So he has a guy called the stand-in who is about his same height and about his same weight, who has the same hair color. That person gets to come and sit in that chair for four hours while they light everything and they're measuring him. And if you've ever seen behind the scenes where a guy with a little thing with a little bubble on it and he's holding it on their nose, like the person they're holding that on, that's the, the stand-in. And so, you know, Tom Cruise may actually only be on set an hour and a half out of a 15-hour day and his stand-in could end up being there 14 hours. Mm-hmm. And yep. so, yes, yeah, so you, you, so that's what you did. You were the person that they would be like, cut, we got to change the lights. And then you get to come in now and wait as they change all the lights and the cameras and they block everything and make sure everything's good. And then, and then when they get ready for the good stuff, which is to turn the cameras on, they're like, you go away. You go sit over <laughs> there when the actor comes on now. The, the thing about it too, is that you're, you're almost never, there's never really a break for the stand-in or the double. Like, so you, cause even during the takes, you know, you need to watch what's going on because they're make, they might make a slight adjustment, a quick slight adjustment where they're like, okay, you know what, instead of opening that door and walking this way, instead, can you do this to the actress, let's say, and she'll have to redo that slightly different. I need to make a mental note or some people even have like a little notepad and, or you'll do it on the lines for the day, you know, and you'll have, um, and you'll make a little note next to that scene, you know, walked in to the right instead of the left because I might have to rehearse that shot later so you're like constantly watching you need to watch in between filming everything um, rehearsing and that's my job to know so as soon as the actress steps out the director producer camera they're all expecting me to know what I should be doing and and you're just listening you have to like listen to everybody you know so you have to be very easy to get along with you know um because you're going to be told what to do and not, not always kindly, <laughs> you know, it's like they, they got a time frame. they got to get stuff done and they, they don't need the stand in to be screwing up, you know, <laughs> it's like the last thing you want. So, um, and then the, like I keep mentioning the double, sometimes there's a body double or sometimes you're both where the body double will fill in a spot for that actor. So, let's say like I did Kate Beckinsale body doubling. Um, there will be scenes where you think you'll see the back of her in a shot and it might actually be the body double, which was me in some, some shots in film Pearl Harbor, which we will get to and discuss. And that's a whole other. And that's what I think blows people's minds is like, so let's say that, you know, there's a scene where you're seeing Ben Affleck talking to the camera, talking to Kate Beckinsale and you see Kate Beckinsale's head and, and a lot of times that's actually your head. I mean, you know, there was a couple other scenes kind of, we'll discuss that, <laughs> that not so much that way, but yeah, we can discuss like, but yeah, but that, I mean, for, for, for general, a lot of times yes. when you're seeing the back of someone's head, that, that yeah. you, a lot of times it's not the actual actor that's there. Right. So like Wesley Snipes, uh, there's some very famous stories about how on, um, uh, Blade 3, he was really difficult to work with, and he refused to be on set for anything where he wasn't actually speaking. 
Okay. And so a lot of people are like, well, how is that even possible? Well, that's possible because with the body double, you can shoot from behind and you don't actually know that it's not even him that's right. there. Yep. And you know, the tricks yeah. of the tricks of Hollywood. So uh, there's a series that just came out called the Witcher mm-hmm. with Henry Cavill and the producer actually made a really big deal about the fact that every thing you see on screen with Henry Cavill's character was actually Henry Cavill. Hmm. Like Henry Cavill didn't allow a stunt person or a stand-in to, if, if, if somebody is running down a hallway and you see a hand reach out of a, a door and grab the guy and pull him in, most actors would never stay there for eight hours to get that shot. They would let their stand-in do that. Henry right. Cavill on that series didn't. He insisted it was that it had to be his hand that was coming out. And that's a lot of work. So us like yeah. actors and people in the industry can totally respect that because we know how much work that will put into yeah. that he has to do. All right. So you were on the show as a stand-in and you made the choice to leave a regular full-time gig. And yeah. what, where did you go after that? So I started doing more extra work, trying to get the, like you were saying, the, the elusive whole, SAG card, <laughs> the whole catch 22, <laughs> you know, so, and so many people know who have started out doing extra work, like you say, or, or are actors. Now you get on the set as an extra, you're non-union and you have all this downtime in between filming as, as extras. You're just sitting most often in a parking lot, you know, <laughs> and like non-union, uh, for instance, not to be, you know, try not to bash that completely, but it can be pretty harsh. Like they'll have like a bucket, you know, a thing of water, maybe where you can like, um, you know, a dispenser of water and then maybe like a bowl of pretzels, you know, and that's, and, that's and a hard metal chair, right. folding chair. And, and maybe if you're lucky, a tent that blocked the sun and half the time you don't even get the tent to block the sun. You're just, here's a parking lot and a metal chair to sit down. We'll come get you in eight hours when we need you. Exactly. That's, yep. That's it. Um, so, you, you know, you do those type of jobs and, and then on the other side, sometimes you can see like, you know, where they're catering, the craft service, the lunch, and you have the union extras who are leaving your group to go have lunch with the actors and the production and they get to have a they got the hot food meal, truck and yeah, all that stuff, you know, and you're like, this is a dream. Like, I want to do that. So you spend your time on set um, or like off, off, I should say, but when you're on your downtime talking to other people, trying to, trying to find out what were the ways that you can become union. You know, you just, you talk to everyone, each, each other, all the extras sharing, what agency do they go to? You know, do they have a calling service who calls in for jobs daily for them? Do they, you know, all these things you're trying to better your position and get more money or get exposure or whatever. And so, um, yeah, you finally learn usually on set oh yeah, so this is what you do. So in order to become Screen Actors Guild, you need to work three times a union job. You got to get the, uh, it's the voucher. They call it a voucher. voucher. So if you can get three vouchers. So this is the thing. It's like like hitting the lottery. Oh yeah. So you go to a, if you're a non-union extra, you go to a union project and let's say there's 300 extras there. Some productions will end up having two union vouchers that they can give to extras. Yep. And so now there's 300 people there and they all know that guy's got the union voucher. And it's like, it, 
it, it can devolve into a, its own sort of like, I mean, there could be a oh. show about the, the mean girl nature of extras just trying to get that one voucher that's available for 300 it's people. It's and like, I mean, it's worth more than gold to people that are trying to get in, into Hollywood. It's true. And, and, and you know, too, when you start getting in that whole business that you know that as a union production, they have to have a certain amount of union extras per show per movie so like you said so they might have they need 13 that day they only have 10 and you know that there's three more sitting you know somewhere with the person who signs you in and out that day and all you need to do is have them give you that union voucher pay instead of the non-union so it's schmoozing it's talking it's being friendly it's being nice it's being easy to work with you know um just trying to get that voucher and you'll see people all day you know trying to manipulate <laughs> and trying to get one of the easiest ways though is to be featured and sometimes that will just happen immediately on set you're just a non-union extra all of a sudden like you were saying you have the main actor in a scene and they say Travis uh, we want you to be right here behind Tom Cruise in this scene your face is going to be seen they need to pay you. That pay wouldn't you. happen with Tom Cruise because all you would see is my chest behind him because he's like 5'7 and I'm a giant. They so would be like, who's that? What's that annoying belt buckle behind <laughs> Tom Cruise's head? What the heck is that? That's, yeah, that's not a good example. But you, on the other hand, you would be behind him. That would, that would be, look just fine. That would be totally fine. Right. <laughs> and I have. I've, I've worked on set with Tom Cruise before. So. Oh, yeah? What movie was this? Um, I'm trying to think of what War of the, the Worlds. Yeah, no, it wasn't War of the Worlds. I'll, I'll it'll, it'll AI um, come. To, uh, so I did AI, but that was Jude Law. Um, so yeah, I did work on uh, the one with Jude Law. Extra um, or stand-in? Oh, for AI, yeah. I was a featured again. Oh yeah, what scene were you featured in? Feature. Um. Oh, so the Tom Cruise one was Minority Report is what oh, um, were, you were you featured in that one? I was featured in that too. What? Yeah. What scene was that one? Let's talk about that. <laughs> I don't even know. I think I might have. I don't even remember the... anymore. Who cares? Moving I on. might. <laughs> that one I might have ended up on the editing floor, but I definitely was hired featured that day. And um, there's a scene like where he's trying to figure out um, and like in his it's like a futuristic office in the the screens um yeah. are all like glass and yeah. everyone's like dressed all futuristic and i even had to wear this little eyepiece that had a little clear glass that's supposed to be my little screen that i look into <laughs> that's awesome um but it was fun and i got to see tom cruise and so here's cool. here's the really silly thing about being featured you usually don't think it's a big deal but i was on a show called uh, boston public mm -hmm. and uh there's a i don't remember what episode it's in but um the professor ends up getting the professor. The principal is an older guy ends up getting, and I say older, like in his like seventies, right? He has white hair and he's older. Yeah. He ends up getting uh, shot by drive by and he dies. And so there's this, <clears throat> we're in the scene where we're all in the auditorium and everyone's like sad about the uh, principal and whatever. And for whatever reason, I ended up being sat in the very front row of the auditorium. And so the cameras are coming down and I'm like, well, you know, 
and again, I'm non, non-union extra. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, I should be sad. Like the professor, like the principal just died and everyone's there kind of whatever. So like the camera's coming by and I start, I'm crying. Like I have oh tears running down my face. <laughs> the other extras are like, what is wrong with you? Like, geez, dude, like this is just <laughs> like, you're an extra. Like, come on, God. Yeah. Well, what ended, what ended up happening was that they actually took that scene because the kid is talking about how much they missed the principal and then they cut in to me and I was crying. And so there's like a three second shot of like, there's a half of a head on the left and a half of a head on the right. And then my face, right? Oh my gosh. I love it. So, so for, you know, (laughs) you're like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Well, what's funny is three months later, I'm in freaking Salt Lake city, Utah. And I'm like just walking down the street and I kid you not, four different times that day when I was walking through the street, people stopped me and said, Hey, were you on Boston public? No way. Yes. <laughs> Come on. That's how ridiculous amazing. is that? And I'm going really like, well, I got paid like 50 bucks. And like, just because my face was on screen. For, but again, yeah. you know, Utah is a smaller, you know, smaller state. And, but, and it was just funny to me that like, wow. Yeah, like that was something that was so small. It was just a, a, a teenage TV show. And then people ended up recognizing me and like that. I ended up being on an episode of Penn and Teller's bullshit. <laughs> and for like a week and a half, two weeks after the episode came out when I was in LA, same people would stop me and ask me if I'd been on the show. And then what was funny was like three, four years later, the, the season got released on DVD and then like people started stopping me again. Wow. It was so weird. I, and nice. I look at that going, like, I was like, that was nothing. Like, I can't. So I look at that going, that's just being a stupid extra and no offense to extras. But right. I mean, this, there's a reason why production people call extras cattle. They're mm-hmm. like, the, you know, mm-hmm. or, or uh, you know, paid set pieces. You, you move over here and the sit over here. Right. But um, so yeah. did you like, so I can only imagine like being something like Minority Report or AI. Like, have you had that? Um, not really so much that, you know, the movie AI, um, that has like Jude Law in it, it was a really cool, and it was directed by Spielberg. So I'm just going to throw so that actually out there. The, <laughs> so, and, and Minority Report. Yeah. So you've got to work with Spielberg yeah. twice. Twice. Yes. Wow. Um, but so for AI, I was, <laughs> it's a, it's a funny thing to say. Um, I was hired as a featured extra and I was basically like this, um, were you a sex robot? Because wasn't was, Jude Law like a pimp or something? It was basically kind of like a sex robot, but I didn't do anything like hey, involving. Who says that like what was? Yeah, is that on your resume? Sex robot number it was, three. It was a sexy <laughs> robot. So yeah, um, yeah, because he is a robot in that. So it's um, there's a scene where it, like in the in the town where he's walking through his this, this town that he has. They have a crazy name for it um and there's all these like sexy robots you know of different kinds so i was teamed up with another um female who i actually became friends with because me and her were were together in this scene and we basically looked pretty close identical um so except and actually her name was her name was breeze and i was breezy and we in real life and we guys looked like twins we looked like twins uh, minus the skin color. <laughs> so she was just, she was, uh, you know, a beautiful black woman, um, sexy robot. I was the white girl. And, um, so we had, a, we had a lot of fun with that. And I had to wear these like thigh high boots that people had to help me get into. I had like one person on one side, another person on the other zipping them up. 
And then I had this really tight corset and I had to have people like get me into it. And the makeup took two hours and the hair took so even two as hours. an extra you had your own makeup and costume yes so see some people might pass off you know extra work but for this being a featured extra it was four hours of hair and makeup probably an hour to get in the actual costume they spray painted my my skin to look perfect like a robot you know perfect no you know flaws whatsoever and it was hot on set and it was miserable and i was getting blisters and my shoes and you know <laughs> the glamorous side of behind the scenes exactly but then but still you know if you if this is really something you're interested in still though you're on set i have blisters on my feet it's scorching hot in there but i look over and i'm like spielberg is right there like jude law is right there like i'm good this is fine you know like so it just depends on, you know, some people like can't stand that kind of stuff. Like my husband, he's worked on sets a couple times and he just he does not enjoy it. I love it. <laughs> like I could deal with it. And we're going to, so we'll, one of our episodes, we'll, we'll bring on my friend, John Donahue. And uh, he's the one who started on ER as an extra, then became featured. And then he started doing stand-in work and he went on to be, um, I mean, he stood in for uh, just off the top of my head, Pierce Brosnan. Uh, wow. Burt Reynolds, uh, Matthew Perry on a Bruce Willis film. Mm -hmm. He stood in for Keanu Reeves. He stood in for, man, just all kinds of people. And then he ended up standing in for Tom Hanks on a film. And then over the course of like six years, he ended up standing in for Tom Hanks like one or two times. Mm -hmm. And then Tom Hanks is regular stand-in guy. So here's another thing. Like most people don't know this, but Tom Hanks had the same stand-in for like 25 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. and people forget like you, you, there's people who make a career out of just being Tom Hanks' stand-in. It's true. And yep. now, now here's the, the, the difference. So regular stand-in, there's a union rate for a stand-in. When you become Tom Hanks's stand-in, you're put on Tom Hanks's contract. And now like the pay rates are like crazy different. Right. And anyway, so because of that, um, John has been able to, he's worked with uh, a, just huge, huge director, the Wachowskis, he's Steven Spielberg, like I think on four different movies, Ron Howard for several of the, the, the Da Vinci movies, um, uh, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen, And it's the same thing. Like, and, and then he, uh, started getting some featured extras on some of those films. And now John is his very much his own, his own actor. And from time to time, he'll still go back and do that. But this is the thing he's, he's built this career. And just from being a stand in, he's, he's made, you know, friendships and connections and relationships with, you know, some of the top people in the game. It's, it's been pretty, pretty amazing. So we'll bring him on and you guys can t talk about your experiences standing in. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, who, who would think that you would have that opportunity. And yeah, and like I said, once you start doing stand-in work, it's just the jobs start coming in because they know that you, um, you know, you know what to do because there is a lot to know. You're easy to work with, and you get a good reputation. Um, it's just way easier to get the jobs from that that point on. So when we were talking about, I worked on Angel. I think I got two of my vouchers on Angel because I became friends with some of the people on set, and it just. I was easy to work with. I worked on it constantly. And then my third, I believe. I'm going to stop you right there because you said sure. something important. Yeah. You said you became friends with people on set and then they helped yeah. you get the vouchers. Just proof that <laughs> nepotism is the best way forward in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, I, yeah. I, and I actually, one of the, the people, person that helped me on Angel, um, I'm still friends with him to this day. <laughs> it's really funny. And um, he's been on a couple other shows and I don't, I'm trying to remember what his position was on the show, but he, um, he was just really nice, just a really nice guy. Nothing fishy. Don't get any weird ideas. It was, it was strictly just, I was easy to work with and I had a good time and they liked me and um, I was friendly or whatever that they liked my personality. So I kept getting asked back and they would feature me and then I would get the, the voucher. Go figure someone who's easy to work with <laughs> shows up on time and knows what they're doing. And right. that person gets more work than someone else. I mean, this yeah. is, how, how this sounds like fishy to me. It doesn't sound like that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, so I'm, a, I'm friends with him still to this day. And then my third voucher, you, you never kind of forget really where you kind of get those from. The third one, that was it. That the was third like one. getting the yeah. golden ticket to uh, the Willy Wonka factory. Yeah. Um, it was actually, I, uh, I was actually hired to be Gwyneth Paltrow stand-in um, on one of her movies, and it was and I, that was funny because I worked a couple things with um, uh, Ben Affleck and and then Gwyneth Paltrow for this one, and um, so they hired me for that, and that was kind of my my third. Do you remember what movie that was? Uh, I, I know. I'm always like, uh, what um, movie did I work on? You just said you never forget when you get that third voucher and you're like, I don't remember. I know. I, I, I need like my resume like um, in front of me. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to check it. I'm going to look it up. But um, again, I had that. I, actually, I did body doubling for her too in that. It wasn't just um, uh, standard work. It was body doubling. Um, and that was where I got my third one. And I had that blonde hair, skinny kind of body at the time. So and did you go out and celebrate with like having like a huge pizza or something to be like, I'm going to be in SAG. Yeah. I don't remember what, like, <laughs> well, I was like 20 at the time. So am I, you know, 19, probably 20. So, um, it was, yeah, big deal. Wow. But this, I mean, you've worked with some amazing people, which is pretty cool. So 18, 19, 20, you're cranking along, you're doing all this amazing work. And then you turn 21 and, and, and like most people, you're excited to turn 21, but unlike most people, you got a very unusual uh, present for your 21st birthday. So would you like to talk about that a little bit? I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, during all that things that I was doing as far as um, I was also, I was holding down just like a normal job at the time, you know, because like we say with this acting stuff, you don't always get a lot of consistent. Sometimes you're working a lot and then you have some downtime and you so it's the feast or famine. To... You'll work crazy like 18 hour days for three months straight. And then you don't have any work at all for six months. Right. Exactly. So I was working at a coffee store um, at my local mall, nearby at the time um and yeah and I was still I was living at my parents house still and uh just trying to you know pay my little bills that I had and do whatever you do at 20 I wasn't 21 yet so it's like 20 I'm just about to be 21 and uh I have like history of cancer my my dad passed away when I was 10 of cancer and I kind of always had this in the back of my head, um, 
worry about it more than I guess your, your average, like, you know, young person or kid. I always had it in the back of my head that like, well, I well, get you cancer. see a parent die when you're 10 years old from cancer. I mean, that's a legitimate concern. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, yeah, it was my 20th, 21st birthday. It was the day of, I was the person that's very healthy, you know, kind of really in tune with my body. Um, and I'm, like I said, I was pretty like slender. I was just naturally like a slender kind of girl. And, and so I was very like bony thin. I have like these major collarbones, like in the, by my neck, I was, they like protrude out, like no matter what weight I am, I have these like really bony collarbones, but I'm getting ready to go out on my 21st birthday. And I had an ex-boyfriend at the time coming to pick me up, <laughs> if that means anything. And I'm getting ready to go out. I really didn't care about your typical, like, go drink and party 21. I was um, doing the whole like swing dance thing at the time. I was taking classes, swing dancing. So I was so excited because I could finally go to the the Derby, which was like the Brown Derby club. And I wanted to go there when I was 21 so I could go and dance. So, uh, so for so. people who don't know that, like that's like, it's the biggest swing dance club in like Southern California. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I was super excited to go. That's all I cared about. I didn't really care about the, the whole drinking stuff. Um, but yeah, as I was getting ready that night, I, I'm like, I saw this really odd, like bump that looked like a, like a swollen gland kind of by my, like I said, my, by my collarbone, by my neck. And it was just an odd place. You know, you're sick, you get swollen lymph nodes on your throat, your neck and stuff. Um, but this was just at a weird spot and, and you could kind of see it right above my right side, my collarbone, just such a weird area. And it was like kind of movable, but solid. And it just, the minute I saw it, I was just like, I, it's cancer. I don't know why, because I knew nothing much about like different kinds of cancer um, that would involve a swollen gland like that. Um, but something just inside me was like, this is cancer. And then my mom was like, you know, calming me down, like, it's okay, you know, don't overreact, have a good time. And, you know, come, I think it was like Friday or Saturday. And they're like, you know, come Monday. We'll make appointment to the doctor. You just got health insurance through your job, which I did. I just got really good health insurance on my own. And I was like, okay. So after the, my birthday weekend, I go into, the, I made an appointment with my doctor. I had never, I wasn't a person who really ever went to doctors. I never been to a hospital, you know, um, all that kind of stuff just kind of freaked me out. And so this was just me like, okay, I'm just going to go establish my new doctor. I got health insurance and, um, you know, he'll check out this lump, you know, big deal. I go in there by myself. No one came with me. And the minute the doctor saw this lump, like I saw it reacted, just freaked out. And he was nervous and wanted an x-ray. He right on the spot, he wanted an x-ray. He wanted a blood test. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what are you talking about here? You know, and nothing really came up. You could see a shadowy area in, a, in the x-ray. Nothing came up in my blood. He sent me home and he said, I, I'm going to, we're going to talk about doing a biopsy as soon as possible. And I'm like, a surgery? Like, are you kidding me? I never had like a surgery before in my life. So I go home kind of just stunned and my parents asking me what happened. And I'm describe what was going on and that this, you know, doctor wanted me to have a biopsy and they flipped out too. They're like, 
no way. This doctor just wants to, you know, you just give this awesome health insurance. He just wants to cut into you and like, no, like this is crazy, you know, I'm freaking out. They're like, no way. You know? So they call the doctor and they just start going off at him and, and he just calmed them down and was like, look, I, I'm being honest here. This looks like a type of cancer. And the only way I can tell is by having a biopsy. I'm, I'm being honest with you. So, um, so it was, it all just happened so fast and quick. So it was just like a whirlwind of all that when, I, I mean, I was also freaking out at the time because I, like we talked about earlier, I was starting to do modeling and the last thing you want as a model is to have a scar on your body. You may have cancer and you're like, oh God, I can't get any uh, scars. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, I can't have a scar. You know, I'm freaking out about that more than anything. Um, so they worked with me on that one and I actually had a plastic surgeon do it. So um, when I went in for the biopsy, they had a plastic surgeon who did the cut and then the stitch. And so they hit it very well. So that wasn't a, an issue, but, um, but yeah, soon after they did the surgery and I had my biopsy, um, and sure enough, it was cancer. It was Hodgkin's lymphoma. So yeah, that's, and then so that's for people <laughs> like me who don't know what Hodgkin's lymphoma is, what type of cancer is that? What does that mean? Yeah. So it's, um, it's part of your lymphatic system. So you have lymphoma cancer, which is a little bit more, um, stronger, harsh type of, uh, lymph, lympho, you know, lymphomatic, whatever cancer. Um, and then you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma is named that because it's a different type of a cell that's slightly different than the regular lymphoma. I, I don't know a lot about it only because, you know, some people like really look into their cancer. Like I have a friend of mine who knows in and out of everything and of her cancer. I just, I didn't look into a lot of that stuff because I just didn't want to dwell on that whole stuff. So I know just about anyone would, would know if you looked it up, you know, if you Google searched it, but um, it's a different type of cell, I guess. And because of that different type of cell, it's actually very curable. So, so if you're going to get a cancer, that's, that's the one to get. Yeah. And that's exactly what they said to me with the doctors. Um, and they think that's So your that's experience funny. was happy birthday. You have cancer. Exactly. Welcome to adulthood. You can drink <laughs> alcohol and now you're going to need it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. So, um, so that, that's, yeah, changed my life completely from that point. Yeah. So what so. was the, what was the treatment options? Was it typical chemo and radiation or? Um, yeah. So since I was very young, I was 21, they, it's always hard. Also, let me just say too, I was 21. I just missed that window of being um, a juvenile cancer. So like a young, you know, childhood cancer, because still when you're in your teens, they would consider it to be a childhood cancer, which is a lot more um, abrasive type of cancer to fight just because when you're younger, your body is still growing. And so those cells like to grow a lot quicker. Mm. So I just passed that point, you know, by a couple of years to be 21. So now it was an adult cancer. So that made it a little bit better as well. Um, so maybe still, when you were working on angel, you picked up some like weird vampire, like yeah, magic vampire that, cells. Like, yeah. Gave that slow, that speeded you up a little bit so you could get past the childhood stage. Right. Yeah, exactly. They immortalized me. Um, <laughs> but 
yeah so it they kind of gave me the idea of just deciding on my own um they took my case like I, I say case like my file my medical file and they actually took it over to um ucla and had the doctors look at it there and then see what they had to say um what they recommended and still it was left at I found it at stage kind of one, two. So in most cancers, you have from stage one to four. And I was a stage one, two, which is really good. Um, it's that right means at the beginning. Early. Yeah. And they very rarely do you find someone Hodgkin's lymphoma in a stage one, two, um, just because it usually takes a little more symptoms to have until you found it. I physically So, so in this saw, case, because you were so skinny. <laughs> yeah bony <laughs> um yeah i noticed it and i thought it was weird and i went to the doctor so um but so yeah they gave me the the option they said since you're 21 you're really young chemo is very harsh on the body um but it also would work very well you can decide if you want chemo a little bit of chemo and radiation full radiation which would be very strong or just chemo and you know, they recommended saying, you know, and the reason why we're giving you this too is because like possibly sometimes, not all, I, I don't want to like, you know, offend anyone, but sometimes certain chemo, depending on where it's going to be located on your body, can cause other th problems to happen. Um, like uh, you might not be able to have children, like, because they were going to have to go down to my spleen area and do it. Like, so um, if they did radiation, it was going to have to go all the way down to my spleen. So there's different things are like, you need to consider that you might not be able to have children. If the chemo has bad effects on your body, you, you might want to freeze eggs, like all this stuff that I was like, I'm 21. I'm not even thinking about kids, you know, like I don't want to think about my future. Like that's so much to think about. So, um, I opted for the radiation. I opted for the really intense radiation. So, and that was, um, a month every single day of radiation and then I had a month off and then I went back for another month. So yeah, it was um, not fun at all. Wow. Yeah. So now how far into recovery are you? Yeah, it's um, 21 years. So yeah, it's a little wow, over remarkable. 21. Yeah, a little over 21. So going through that process, did that change your viewpoint on what you wanted out of modeling and acting career? Or did, 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 did some things become more important? Did acting become less important? How did that sort of impact your, your, your life? View? Yeah. And let me just say, sorry to any people who know my morals nowadays, but like you were mentioning, I, during that time to try to cope which probably wasn't a good thing, but I did drink a lot. <laughs> I did like, it was like the opposite of what I should have been doing. But then during treatment and everything, I, a lot of times if I could, I would go out with friends and drink and like, you know, just to try to- I don't to, think like, anybody's going to my... fault you on that. I mean, you know, you, you, ba you basically got a 50-50 chance of living. So yeah. <laughs> you're like, hey, you know, I just barely got to the point where I can actually have alcohol and three months from now I may be dead. So let me see yeah. what this is about. Right. I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with, with that. And it, it changed a lot of things in my life um, from, yeah, from what I want to do as a career, um, just life as, as I know it, like why I'm here, <laughs> like, um, be, like you said, because they gave me such a good chance of survival, it was like, okay, 
so I'm going to survive this. I have a pretty good chance of surviving. Um, so what I'm, I'm given like a second chance at life kind of, so how am I going to use it now? Um, I kind of, to be honest, I'll be straight honest. I, I didn't have the greatest attitude before I was diagnosed with cancer. In fact, I ended up dating somebody during the time I was sick, uh, a friend of mine that I knew in high school. And um, we started dating when I was diagnosed with cancer. He stuck around with me the whole time, which was really cool. But um, he was like, you're a whole other person, <laughs> I, like nicer. So, I mean, I, I wasn't the easiest to get along with. So you, so you um, burned all the bitchiness out of you? The radiation yeah, burned it out of you? I was bitchy. Yeah, I can say that. <laughs> I can say that on the podcast. Um, so yeah, and, and that changed. My personality changed. Um, my look on life, I became more spiritual. And uh, the, the part of like doing acting and modeling was like, yeah, like why not? I don't want to work at a normal job. I tried to to keep my normal job for as long as I could, but a lot of the side effects that when I was sick just kept me from not going to work. So eventually I did take time off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I did take time off and then um, I did try to go back to that job and I was there one day and I remember just having, it was a coffee shop and people just coming in bitching about their coffee and I'm looking at them like, I'm going through cancer and you're complaining about a stupid coffee, you know, like I'm thinking in my head, like, what is this reality, you know, and they have no idea. So I just, one day I was supposed to go into work and I was sitting on the parking lot and I just called in. My friend was actually the manager at the time. And I just like, I can't come in. She's like, okay, are you sick? I'm like, no, I'm like not coming in anymore. Like I just can't, <laughs> it's just, I'm done. Yeah. You know, it's <clears throat> so I, I have a, a book coming out in a few months, and um, one of the things I, I talk about it, and you know, obviously, right now in the United States, there's the sort of this big movement with white privilege. And I'm not saying that <laughs> you know, people that are white don't have privilege, but right. I think there's a bigger, much more insidious form of privilege, which your experience there is sort of you know highlighted here's people coming in and they're bitching about a freaking cup of coffee right and so my i i've coined a phrase called american privilege mm -hmm. and personally i believe most people in the united states are just so clueless to how amazing it is to live in this country and how good we have it and 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 not to be critical of younger generations but i've certainly known it noticed in my conversations with people that are under 30 years old that like there's such a sense of entitlement and just a complete ignorance and, and uh, that, that's the word ignorance of how the rest of the world works. And, and you know, I'm not going to get on access not that the topic of this thing, but I, I think that's just kind of a, you know, even back then there was that, that thing where, Oh my God, my life is so horrible because of my coffee. And it's just like, really like <laughs> yeah. there's 60 million people living in refugee camps outside of Syria right now right. for the last four years. And, you know, we have a, a 29 year old, you know, politician in our country sending out a tweet saying my generation has never known prosperity. Mm -hmm. She says tweeting from a thousand dollar phone that is a device that you can carry the internet around with you and has a bunch of pretty pictures and you push those pictures and literally anything on the face of the earth will be delivered to your doorstep the next day. Right. But, yeah. you know, so mm -hmm. it's like, I, I, yeah. what an amazing, you know, 
obviously this is a horrible experience for you to have, but at the same time, that experience right there showing kind of how, and, and, and you know, the reality is, is like, like you said, b- before that, you may have been the person that was griping about the cup of coffee. <laughs> right. Exactly. And but then suddenly, you know, this one experience lets you go, hey, wait, there, there you know, there's something more here. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's why so. I, what, whatever you believe in, that's why I believe either in a, in a karma or a higher power, um, because uh, I always say too, you know, not everybody gets a second chance. So I was very humble. It, you know, it was a humbling experience. And then it also kind of, um, I wish everyone, you know, I know people have rough times in life to wonder what, why their existence is. Some, a lot of people question that and have times that they go through like hard times in life. And I had those moments. And this was like one of those moments where I knew I was supposed to survive. So um, I didn't know quite why, you know, what my path was, but I knew I had to survive. I was going to survive. And for some reason, uh, I was kept here. So I, I better make it good is the message I got. Wow. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it just reminded me of an experience that I had. So when I was um, 20, I decided to drop out of college and I went and spent uh, two years as a full-time missionary for my church. And uh, I ended up being um, sent to the inner city of El Paso. And so you can imagine a six, 340 pound skinny white kid and in, in, in right on a border town where no one speaks English. Yeah. And uh, I remember actually, so there was members of our church sometimes would have us as missionaries over for dinner. Uh, and there was one particular family that they had, they were immigrants from Mexico. They, they had come over about four years beforehand and he'd gotten a job and got his visa and he was working on his path to citizenship. And they had, they had found the church that I belonged to. And it, it, for him, it had really changed his life. And so he and his wife were really, really grateful for the the church. And I remember, so, you know, I'm at this point in time, I think I'm 21 years old and we're going over for dinner and they had three kids. And so we're, we're having dinner. And as we're having dinner, I realized the, the, the children aren't there and the wife and the, the husband, they aren't eating. It was just the the guy that I was with. We were the only ones that had food, and so we were talking, and it, it seemed a little unusual. And they and the, you know they made kind of gestures like, "Oh no, we we ate earlier," but then we realized that that meal that we were having was all of the food that they literally had. Oh man! And they had the reason their children weren't at the table is because they'd sent their kids to bed because they didn't want their kids to see the food because they knew their kids were hungry. Oh. So you can imagine being a 21-year-old kid and sitting at a table eating food, realizing that this guy's kids were sent to bed hungry because he was so grateful for the missionaries that he had met years before and how that changed his life that he was willing for one day to give us all of his food so that we could have what we needed to go help other people. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of go off on this American privilege stuff from time to time. But it's like you said, at a very young age, I I had a a fairly big wake up in terms of, you know, what life is really like for some people. And, And, you know, I probably spent weeks questioning myself going, do I believe enough in what I believe? Is there anything in my life that I'm grateful enough for that I would literally not eat for a couple of days and I would send my children to bed hungry because as my expression of gratitude, I would be giving my food to someone else. Yeah. And uh, you know, that really, that really colored, 
colored my outlook with a lot of the things that I've, I've done in life. So anyway, we, we've, we've ventured off a little bit from our Hollywood <laughs> topics, but um, so I think this is a good yeah. place to end uh, episode one and mm -hmm. episode two. Let's uh, so episode one was, uh, you know, breezy before cancer and uh, <laughs> let's jump into episode two and it'll be breezy career post-cancer. How's okay. that sound? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right.